This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. What if you heard a man say, I am a fantastic driver. In the last 40 years, I've only been pulled over three times. It sounds okay, right? Now, what if you learned that, in fact, he'd only had his driver's license for a week? Would that change your perspective on that man's statement? Of course it would, because what he said may be true, but it's really only half true. And unfortunately, the same kinds of misleading statements have been applied over the years to Christianity. What are some of these half-truths, and how do we do and correct them. Well, joining me now is Flip Michaels. He is an associate pastor at Grace Life Church in Pennsylvania and author of the book we'll be discussing today called Five Half-Truths, Addressing the Most Common Misconceptions of Christianity. And Flip, it's great to have you with us. How are you? Oh, Jan, it's the other way around. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here. You say the most dangerous lie is the half-truth. I think you're right about that, but explain for people why you say that. Well, because I, 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 yeah, I do agree with that. We all, we all struggle with discerning half-truths today. And as you're making the point already that, you know, whether it's in politics, media, in the workplace, it is commonplace. Uh, and you certainly know this. You address worldviews that are antithetical and biblical to the gospel on your program. And discernment is uh, something that is lacking today. It's, it's sorely needed. Yep. And uh, I, I, the premise of my book is uh, based on a J.I. Packer quote where he says, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Yeah. And so while the book doesn't mention me till the very end, in many ways it's my personal testimony how I came to faith in Christ, and it, it is struggling with these kind of half-truths concerning Christianity. So dealing with the Bible, dealing with Christianity, dealing with God, dealing with Christ, dealing with faith, in which we make these uh, statements that uh, say them enough and they sound believable. The Bible was written by men, but the whole truth is that it's written by men and inspired by God. That's the first half-truth in the book, as an example. Right, exactly. And you've got several of them here, five, in fact. What has your experience been? You mentioned that half-truths have had an effect on you and you're coming to the Lord. And this is a story that you tell, but what is it about half-truths that derail people from understanding what Christianity really is? How does this affect people when they hear only a half-truth about a particular doctrine? Well, we, we, you know, we live in a very marketable and soundbite generation, and so we say a statement, and we say it over and over again, it becomes believable. So to say something very simple like, all all religions are the same, which is the second half-truth, meaning that there are different paths, but it's to the same God. You know, you hear those things over and over again, they become believable, and and, uh, hinting back, really back to um, discernment, you know, it's something where we become lazy. Uh, we really don't do the homework. And so we hear it, and it sounds good. And so it starts to frame our worldview. Yep. Uh, we say God is love. Uh, God, meaning he's permissible in in anything we do today. He just wants me to be happy in how I live. That's the third half truth. When we disregard that he's also holy, holy, holy. And so, yes, yeah, so we hear these half-truths, and we, we use them as whole truths, kind of like your example with the 
the driver and yeah. getting here. You know, right, it's it's right. just something that's very dangerous because you you make the statement and you say it over and over again, and it, it's believable. It's something you just run with becomes your worldview. Yeah. Oh, you're so right about that. And I, I love what you say about discernment because that really is the need of the hour. There are a lot of people, unfortunately, in the church who will listen to some of these half-truths and say, well, what's wrong with that? So we're going to try to debunk some of these. You had mentioned, Flip, your first half-truth, which is the Bible was written by men. You hear this all the time, and I hear this sometimes even from people inside the church. Well, I don't really know if the Bible is inerrant. I mean, it was written by men. Men and men are sinful and men are not perfect. So if the Bible was written by men, why would we assume that the Bible is inerrant? It doesn't make any sense. And I thought, well, somebody's pastor is not doing a good enough job explaining the doctrine of inerrancy to them. But what would you say is the correction to that idea that the Bible was written by men, dot, dot, dot? Well, I appreciate that. You know, uh, I I take some time to unpeel some of those uh, layers uh, in, in the first chapter where uh, I came at it originally as um, the example I, I use in the book, and really was my personal example, was Jesus walking on water in Matthew 14, that account. And I would say, hey, that's just a product of the, the telephone game. Uh, you know, it's something that where over a period of time, the, the what really happened changed. Yeah. Um, but in the book, I, I start taking you through that it really is not an assortment of fairy tales bound together. When you learn how we receive the Bible, you can't deny that it deserves to be called the Word of God. And so some of these layers, first and foremost, the activity and how we receive the Bible, you know, it's an activity of special revelation, and I I walk through that carefully in there. And then the authenticity of the Bible, what we actually have, you know, uh, you go to colleges today and you have to read Sophocles, uh, Caesar, Plato, and uh, the manuscript evidence that we have for the Bible, and, and it's growing every day. It's currently, I think, at 5,700 New Testament copies in hand. It, it surpasses any manuscript count that you would have by far yeah. uh, with the names I've mentioned. And then you get into the accuracy, and this is where it gets fun. You get into historically looking at things like archaeology. And one example I give in the book, which uh, is one of my favorite, is, um, you know, we found over 400 royal seals. Uh, these are personal autographs, basically, of uh, Old Testament people, which is just incredible. And you think of all the names that are mentioned in the Old Testament, and they have 400 of them wow. just validated by their seals that we have found, and, and, and meant much more evidence than that. And then scientifically, uh, we look at discoveries that were first stated in the Bible many, many years prior, so things like the life is in the blood, uh, hydrology, that cycle of hydrology, um, the fixed orbit of the planets, these kind of things. And so when you look at the activity and then the authenticity and then the accuracy of what we have known as the Word of God, you're confronted with its authority. Yeah. So does it bear the full weight of God's authority? And that's where we would say, yes, it's one long quote from God himself. You can put a quotation mark in the beginning at Genesis 1-1 and turn to the end of your Bible, Revelation 22-21, and put an end quote. It's the divine author literally breathing out in one seamless book, one singular message. It's the Word of God. Yes, it is. Well said. But when you go to a passage like 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, people will know this verse, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Some people will have an issue with that particular verse 
using it as a self-attestation to the inerrancy of scripture because they'll say it's a circular argument. Yes, you have passages in the word of God that attest to its reliability and its inspiration, but isn't that a circular argument to go to the book, quote the book, and then say, see, it's true because I quoted the book authenticating itself. How do you respond to that kind of issue? Well, I I, I would have to say that we have to come at it from both sides. Uh, we certainly, we support scripture with scripture. And uh, I don't see anything wrong with making that case. But, you know, God has given us uh, plenty of evidence in the world we live in. Uh, we get into Romans 1, really being able to see clearly from what he, was ma- what he has made that there's a God. Yes. And we can go even further in some of the things he's allowed us in his common grace really to uncover, to uh, really speak to the accuracy of the Bible. But it, there is, there, there is um, some wrestling that is done within the Church as well of saying, hey, you know, you're just giving me some circular reasoning here. You're just trying to prove the Bible with the Bible. And so in my book, I intend to do both. I intend also to uh, be apologetic and, and step outside that for a moment. I and mean, I certainly support Scripture with Scripture, and I believe we should do that. Oh, absolutely. But we have evidence, as I just gave an example, you know, that, uh, look, just archaeology alone uh, is just some incredible finds. Not too long ago, recently here, um, we were talking about what Pontius Pilate and a seal of his that was just found. Um, and to be able to point to that and go, look, Pontius Pilate, I mean, it's is a very important individual in the New Testament, and uh, we, we have evidence that he truly existed. Outside of Scripture, we can point to that. Right, right. Well, and also the fact that when you say that the Bible was written by men, that is not negating the fact that it's inspired by God. And people think, you know, right. at first blush, well, if it's written by men, it couldn't be God's book. That's not the case either. No, not at all. You know, and, and it's kind of funny because you would say, okay, well, who— who wrote First uh, Corinthians? Was it Paul or was it the Holy Spirit? Right. And yes, it was Paul. Well, yes, it was the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, you know, you, you want to be able to come at that and be able to explain that uh, it was written by men, but it was inspired by God. Well, hang on a moment. We're going to go to a quick break. Flip Michael's with us. His book is called Five Half Truths. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you with us. Flip Michaels is here, Associate Pastor of Grace Life Church in Pennsylvania and author of Five Half Truths, Addressing the Most Common Misconceptions of Christianity. This is kind of fun for me, actually, Flip, to go through these and debunk them. I think it's sometimes one of the most helpful things we can do is to talk about the lie and then explain why it's not true. And we were discussing the Bible was written by men. That's a half truth because it was written by men, as you mentioned, who wrote First and Second Corinthians. It was Paul and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit breathed out the word of God and Paul. Paul was the one who wrote it. But let's go to the second half truth that you mentioned, where people say all religions are the same. We're back to the elephant argument. You know, that famous story that people tell about the different people putting their hands on the different parts of the elephant, but basically it's all the same elephant. Where would you go to debunk that half truth? What would you say? I appreciate that. You know, the, the, uh, Really, two answers here. One is, first, we would go, the place I take you in, in the book is the Gospel of John. But um, just to that point real quick, as as you're alluding to, I mean, they can't all be the same, as the basic tenets of Christianity make this impossible. And so, yeah, we go to the Gospel of John, which uh, is a courtroom drama. And there are eight witnesses that are called to, test, to, be, uh, to give testimony by the Apostle John. And in the book, I use four of them. I use John the Baptist. I go to the works of Christ, God the Father, and the Scriptures. And so you start to uh, look at what has been said, what gives testimony not just to Christianity and the Gospel of John, but Jesus Christ. And you, you do realize they can't all be the same. Buddhists, uh, Hindus, Mormons, Wiccans, you know, fill in the blank with the world religion. They can never, ever get past the whole truth claims that are found in the Gospel of John. Right. Uh, you can't lump God's Word with another because it's unlike any other. So, you know, you can't reconcile Christianity with the religions of the world. It would have to come at the cost of truth. You would have to do something to the Bible. You'd have to uh, punch out verses. You know, you'd have to have a perforated one and say, okay, these are the verses I don't agree with. I'm going to punch them out in order to do that in some way to say all religions are the same to embrace that half-truth. Well, don't you think part of the problem that happens is people reduce religions when they don't know enough about religions to be able to have an informed opinion. They tend to look at religions as systems of behavior. So they could say all religions basically want people to be good to one another. All, you know, they they want the, the world to be peaceful, those sorts of things. But the differentiation between Christianity and other religions is the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, no other religion has Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. Certainly you have in Islam, Jesus as a prophet, but he's not a prophet who can save. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and so like when you're talking with somebody and they're new to this, 
you, you uh, want them to, one of the places I take them is the Gospel of John. And I said, well, you know, why don't you take some time and read through the Gospel of John and get a good study Bible, get a John MacArthur study Bible, and go through the Gospel of John. And you see exactly that, what you're talking about. And that's why it's also important in, in order here really to talk about first the Bible and then really are all religions the same, because we want to establish the authority of Scripture. Yes. So we, we want them to recognize that this really can be, it is, the Word of God, and then uh, have them walk through the Gospel of John and really get that testimony of some of those witnesses. That's excellent. Yeah, that's a great place to start. All right, let's go to the half-truth that God is love. We hear that, of course, God is love, First John. We know God is love, but as you mentioned before, He is holy, holy, holy. What is the difference between, because the newbie might say, well, is that contradictory, that He's love and also holy? Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, in, in one way, and I put this in the book, it's an issue of semantics. Uh, you know, words change in meaning over time by how they're used. You take a word like fundamentalist. There was a day that really was a fine word. Fundamentalist was somebody who held to the fundamentals of the faith. That's right. a scary word today. Yeah, You don't want to be called a fundamentalist <laughs> today, especially if you're getting on an airplane. You don't want that. Yeah. And the phrase God is love has been sanitized over time to insinuate that a loving God could never be a judging one. But that's not the whole truth, right? The whole truth is that semantics has no sway on Scripture. The culture can't change that timeless meaning of what God has said. He is holy. He is, as a matter of fact, set apart. Every attribute of His is set apart. So His mercy is set apart. His grace, His goodness, His justice, and certainly His love. And uh, what I do is I walk through the vision that um, is found in Isaiah 6, uh, where we have in uh, verse 5 of Isaiah's, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is confronted really with the awareness of God. He has this vision of God, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And I love the King James in this, says undone. Just a great response there, because when you see the awareness of God, when you begin to understand the awareness of God, when you have an awareness of God, maybe I should say it that way, you become more self-aware of who you are before God. And you certainly then see that whole truth of God is love, but it's a holy love. It's a holy love that's rooted in the cross. And so it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's almost arrogant to say, well, God is love. He just, he, he, he really doesn't have any um, uh, set-apartness in his attributes. He really, his attributes aren't that high. Um, his standard isn't that high. As long as I'm happy, He's fine with that because mm. he's a loving God, and that's not the God of Scripture. Yeah. He is a God of love. Don't want to deny that at all. But he's a God of love that's rooted in the cross. It's a holy love. It's one that's set apart. It's unlike any other. Yes, exactly right. Now, when we come to the claim that Jesus is truly a man, which clearly he is, and he lived on earth as a man, no doubt about it, what is being left out of that half-truth that people need to understand? What is the completion of the truth? Oh, yeah, he's, he's truly God. And that's the problem. Really, uh, today, to dispute that um, uh, Jesus uh, didn't live in Nazareth and he, he really wasn't a man would kind of be pointless. I mean, you have unbelievers who, uh, who embrace this. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not an issue, really. The issue is whether he's truly God. Yeah. And he claimed to be the Son of God, not merely a good teacher. So, I mean, he, he made statements that he's one with the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, this is called um, C.S. Lewis's trilemma. You really have three options in looking at this, of uh, this, this whole truth that Jesus is truly a man and truly God. He's either a liar in the sense that um, 
he knew the truth in the sense that he, he was just a man, he's not God, and he's making this lie, or he's a lunatic in that he still knew this half-truth that he's truly a man, but he uh, actually believes he's God, although he's not, or obviously what we embrace wholeheartedly, that he is Lord. And so in our culture today, what happens is Jesus Christ, that name becomes either, sadly, a swear word or Savior. Yeah, that's but true. But regardless of how a person's going to address Christ in this life, you know, that reality of his dual nature, it still remains. The whole truth is he's truly man, and he's truly God. John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's right. And, and a Savior who was not truly divine, was not truly God, could not have saved us. This is also an essential element, I think, to, to stress to people. How could uh, just a man save you? Amen. It's yeah. Important. You know, I, in the book, I go through two different types of grace. You know, a common grace that's there. We certainly have the love of God displayed in a common grace, um, uh, whether we have heat and air conditioning and water and uh, medical technology and, and telephones and all the things we have. Uh, but the saving grace comes from one who is truly man and truly God. Amen. Very good. And to the fifth one, one of the other half-truths that you write about in your book is that our good deeds matter. Our good deeds matter. You add on when preceded by faith. This is one of the trickiest things to discuss with people sometimes, the relationship between God's grace and Christ alone and his grace alone and saving us through faith alone, and also where works fit into that picture. So what are you talking about when you say our good deeds matter when preceded by faith? Yeah, you know, Janet, I could almost have put this as the first one unpacked, because like you said, it, it is, um, it's one of the most difficult. It's certainly one of the most common that's out there. It's not usually stated in that way. You know, it is stated in such a way that, you know, when we get to the pearly gates, uh, God is going to weigh our good deeds with our bad deeds, and hopefully he'll grade on a curve and he'll see I'm a good person and I've done some good things, and that will, you know, merit me some entry into heaven. But the truth is, the truth from God's Word is our good deeds never, ever merit salvation. But even so, you know, man tries to devise a number of religious ways to save himself, and we call those works. But only one work merits salvation, and it's the atonement. It's Christ on the cross. It is the Son of God giving of himself on the cross, dying for the sins of all who will believe. And so you have two types of works is what I walk through in this dealing with our faith. You can place your faith in a man-centered human achievement, uh, which is is certainly faulty, or divine accomplishment, Christ-centered. So which will you place your faith in? And that's why our good deeds matter when they're preceded by faith. That's right. Well, and in an age where we are seeing a lot of antinomianism, this idea that once you're saved, you can just pretty much do anything you want, which Paul debunks in Romans chapter six, this idea that you can just do whatever you want once you're saved, this alleged free grace, what would you say to that? Because the Bible talks very specifically about how we are to live our lives in a godly manner as Christians. We can't worry about being called legalists merely because we're stressing the importance of godliness. Yeah, I, I, it's very dangerous to go down that path. Um, very, very dangerous. You know, we, we're to work out our salvation with trembling and fear. This is something that, um, you know, uh, we we don't. It, it's not a prayer or walking down the aisle, and that's the end of it. That's that's not um, our faith experience. It's certainly all our days, all our lives. We certainly have the assurance of our salvation. Don't misunderstand me. And I know you're not, but I just want to make that clear. That's not where I'm going with it. But it is something where we have a regard for God's Word and for Him being glorified. And uh, if we don't live in the fear of the Lord, then we really need to take a hard look at ourselves and ask, really, am I a Christian? 
am I really even saved? Um, Am I really living with uh, believing these whole truths? And are they pouring out of my life? Am I seeing the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Because if I'm not, if I'm just going to say, well, you know, I I prayed a prayer, um, and then I'm just going to continue along my way, um, I'm not not seeing just in that. You know, we're not seeing fruit of what a true believer, a mark of a true true believer would be. Uh, We're certainly not seeing a high regard for the Bible. Uh, a high regard for the exclusivity of Christ and Christianity, yes. certainly of God and His holiness and our faith and wanting to glorify Him in that. I love that. Well, Flip Michaels, the book is called Five Half-Truths, and it was so good to have you here, Flip. God bless you, and thanks a lot for being with us. Back at you. Thank you, Janet. All right. God bless you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. We are back on Janet Meffer Today. Not once, but twice. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, the Lord Jesus Christ says these words, let not your heart be troubled. Why does the Lord say that? Because as he says, he gives his peace to us in the midst of a troubled world and because he goes to prepare a place for us in heaven. And yet we all seek comfort in the midst of our earthly trials, which God always provides. And we're going to talk about that today with Dr. Harold Sela. He is a Bible teacher and founder and president of Guidelines International. He is also the voice of Guidelines, a five-minute commentary on living his latest book is called When Your Heart Cries Out to God. Harold, it's wonderful to have you here. How are you? Well, thank you, Janet. I'm delighted and I'm fine today. Yeah, and I'm also looking forward to my conversation with you and uh, all of the people who will be joining us and listening. I'm glad you're here. Well, you refer to this chapter of John, John 14. You have a devotional here in your book from John 14, 27, where Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You say what he's really telling the disciples here is to stop worrying. What is the context here? They're in the upper room. The disciples are troubled, obviously. And how does Jesus calm them down in this way? Well, that's one of my favorite passages. The uh, events in the Gospel of John take place on 21 days in the life of our Lord, from chapter 12 on, within the last seven days. If anybody ever had any reason to be troubled, it was Jesus, because he saw the storm on the horizon. And the word to be troubled is to rustle, and it is also used of Galilee when it was whipped into a molten frenzy. But he said then, he spoke words of peace and comfort. He told them that in his father's house there were many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And words that you often hear at funerals, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Someone once said that heaven is Jesus spelled out in large letters. Uh But we live in a very troubled world today. Whether you saw the news this morning or you picked up a newspaper or you uh, heard the morning news on TV, wherever you look, it seems as though all hell is about to break loose. And we can expect that before the Lord returns. But the good news is he's 
fully in control. And for those of us who belong to him, he is not indifferent. He knows our pain, he knows our heartache, and he cares very much. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are a lot of Christians who will make the comment, kind of a throwaway comment, and say, well, I get fearful about things, I worry about things, and if I could just be with Jesus in person, I think I would really feel better if I could just see him and talk to him and walk with him as the disciples did. But doesn't that passage point out it really doesn't matter because the disciples had some of the same struggles that we do today? When we believe what God says in his word, Jesus is really saying, look, you don't have to worry, I'm in control. Yes. When I talk about fear, I told the story of a little boy who uh, took the family broom and he was outside playing with it, and that evening the father wanted to sweep something up, and he said, where's the broom? And the son said, oh, Daddy, I played with it this afternoon, it's out in the backyard. Well, son, go out and get the broom. But, Daddy, it's it's dark out there. He said, look, God's out there. Don't worry. Just go out and get the broom. The little kid goes to the door. He looks out in the dark. He says, God, if you're out there, would you please bring me the broom? (laughs) That's good. That's how so many people are, lacking the positive assurance that nothing happens apart from what God allows And for those of us who are believers, I am convinced that whatever happens to us is filtered through the fingers of the Father, and He will go with us through the dark valley. Every dark valley has an end. And in the book that I wrote, When Your Heart Cries Out to God, I deal with a whole bunch of the whys of life, like when you need to say, I'm sorry, when you're frustrated, when your broken life needs healing when you wonder whether life makes sense, when you're angry, when you hope, when you need courage, when you need peace. These are everyday issues that sooner or later we all face. Yes, that's right. I I thought it was interesting. In one of the stories that you tell, you talk about a letter you received, and the writer was afraid in this instance that he wasn't saved and said, I'm so afraid because my faith is so small. I'm not sure God has even saved me. How would you reassure somebody like that who's worried about the quantity of his faith rather than the quality of his faith? Well, that's very difficult, but I go back to The source of our faith is what we find recorded in the 66 books of Scripture. If Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and the Holy Spirit was the one who worked in the lives of the men who recorded this thing, what it says, and this we can trust. And I often take people to the Psalms. There are so many beautiful, beautiful Psalms, and they reflect the same emotions and feelings that trouble people to get Like Psalm 61, where David wrote, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock who is higher than I. Psalm 42 and 43 both end with these words, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. I am fully persuaded that God has not turned his back on his own. He knows what our needs are. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings comfort, who brings guidance, who brings direction. And he is the one who can take us through the dark valley. That's right. Well, you also say, Harold, in the book that there is this understanding that our God of peace, as Scripture describes him, is not the same as the gods they were worshiping 
as the pagans back in Bible times, that the God of peace stood in direct opposition to worshiping pagan gods. How was that the case, that this God of peace was in direct opposition to the gods that so many worshiped at that time? Well, God demonstrates himself in different ways in different situations. The one who calmed the storm when the disciples were in the little boat, fearful that it was going to sink. The one who walked on water is the same one who reaches out to the sick, to the fallen, to the people who are in distress. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. You believe in God, believe also in me. And subsequently, there comes that peace to those who will open themselves up to the Lord and realize some way Somehow, he's going to take him through that storm. It isn't the storm that destroys us. It's our fear that does not realize he will take us through that storm. So subsequently, I remember the first time I ever saw Galilee. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and I uh, walked down from the hotel, and the wind was blowing a torrent, and it was just one conglomeration of big waves and gray tide. It was frightening. The next morning, though, as the sun rose, it was beautiful, and the storm was behind us. And when you're caught in the middle of the storm, you wonder, how is he going to take me through this? Hmm. But he's a master. He's taken many people through that storm. And for you who are listening to our conversation, whatever the need of your life is, he will meet you and take you through that. There was an old song we used to sing, only trust him, only trust him now. He will surely give you peace, only trust him now. And so then you can look back and say, hey, yeah, that was a terrible situation. But I am firmly convinced that God is still in control, Mm -hmm. that nothing happened to us apart from the will of the Heavenly Father. And subsequently, to know that Jesus said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That means he walks with us through the storm. Amen. You know, Janet, some time ago, a publisher asked me if I would write a little booklet on my favorite verse. Well, I have a lot of favorite verses, (laughs) and I had to think about that for quite a while. And then there was a concept that is recorded twice in Scripture that I believe means more to me than anything else. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, where Jesus told the disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Hebrews thirteen seven, where he says, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And Wonderful. this means no matter how dark it is, how difficult the storm is, or what turbulence confronts us because of our relationships, he will be there to take us through that. I love it. Dr. Harold Sala is with us. We're going to go to a very quick break. Coming back, When Your Heart Cries Out to God is his book. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. We'll return after this. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. 
Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? For $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift is doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's great to have with us Dr. Harold Sala. He's a Bible teacher and founder and president of Guidelines International and the Voice of Guidelines, a five-minute commentary on living. We're talking about his book, When Your Heart Cries Out to God, Finding Comfort in Life's Trials. And this is a common experience for all of us. You know, Harold, it's kind of funny when I think about this in a funny, ironic way. Here we are as Christians saying to ourselves, I am trusting completely in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins and bring me to heaven for eternity. But on the other hand, when I have a trial, I'm not sure God can help me. I mean, how is it that we can trust God for our salvation so many times, but we look at our own trials and sufferings in this life and begin to doubt him? It's it's crazy if you think about it. Well, it really is. You know, when you can look back and you can see where you, the hand of God was very definite, then it makes it easier for you to trust him here. Uh, there are times that I would ask, has God ever failed you? Well, yeah, but I prayed about this and it didn't happen. Well, possibly there's a lesson for us as God takes us through that storm instead of simply protecting us from that storm. Relationships are so important. And today, as you well realize, Janet, many, many people have trouble with relationships. Yes. They bear ill feelings. They have hatred toward people. And so many times, though, the Bible says that forgiveness is one of the answers to the turbulence of relationships gone back. Man's extremity, I think, is really God's opportunity. To forgive someone does not mean what you did was okay, but rather it means I give up my right to hurt you because you hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I'm fully persuaded that God will give me grace to do the right thing no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Forgiveness is essential because we've been forgiven for so much ourselves. And another subject that you mention is anger, because many of us, obviously, the Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. But many of us will struggle at times with anger. How do you hang, handle even righteous anger in a godly way? How would you help people to do that? 
Well, first of all, I would say either anger is neither good nor bad in itself. There are situations where if you do not have anger, you're not doing what God wants you to do. But altogether too often, our anger is in an abusive manner. We say things that we should not have said, and it's not the kind of thing that can, uh, you know, bring glory to God. There's no question in my mind there were occasions when Jesus was angry. On two occasions, he drove the money changers out of the temple. This is the same one who held the little children in his arms and blessed them and said, of such is the kingdom of God. When you are confronted with a situation that violates what you know is right and you have no anger, then you're angry about the wrong things. Mm-hmm. But I would say, look, be angry for the right reason, be angry for the right duration of time, and then turn loose of your anger and let God do what only he can do. Forgiveness is one of the solutions to living angry. Yes. When somebody has done something that you feel is wrong and you're angry with that person, put them in the Lord's hand and let him deal with the situation. To forgive does not mean what you did is okay. But what what it really means is I am putting you in God's hands and he is the one who will deal with you in that situation. The Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 is one of the verses that we first taught to our children when we had them at home. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And that means, simply put, though forgiveness is contrary to our natures, it is the right thing to do, allowing God to deal with situations that only he can deal with. Yes. Um, it's interesting when Jesus told the disciples to pray what we describe as the Lord's Prayer. Immediately after this, he said that if we do not forgive others their trespasses, our Father in Heaven will not forgive us. Right. And uh, I will always remember a conversation I had with a couple whose son has had had a relationship with a young woman and she was pregnant. And he refused to forgive, absolutely. Hmm. I turned to him and said, Mr. So-and-so, from this point on, you had better live a sinless life because God will no longer forgive you. Now, (laughs) it was like I hit him over the head with a baseball bat. He wasn't accustomed to people talking to him like that. (laughs) But I turned to Matthew 6, and I quoted the passage that I just shared. When we forgive... We yield something to the Lord and let him deal with it. And, you know, Peter had that question, how many times do I forgive, Lord? Uh, Seven? Well, the rabbis taught that you forgive seven or no more. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. So you make a coupon book. Uh Uh-huh, 490, you keep track of every one, 487, so forth. And then, pow, that's not what he meant. Peter was a fisherman. And he knew what it was for another fishing boat to go ahead and to mess with his nets. Subsequently, there are times that we forgive, and then the memory comes back to haunt us, and all of the anger wells up again, and you have to forgive and forgive again. My uh, father-in-law, who was a very godly man and a pastor, uh, preached a sermon called Confessing to the Devil. And his whole theme was, after you have confessed something, God has forgiven you. 
But then Satan comes back to remind you, and the anger and the chaos and everything else hits you again, yes. and you confess it. But the only one listening is the devil, because God has forgiven you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's excellent. It's true. He tempts you to sin, and then after you sin, he points the finger and screams at you for sinning, you dirty sinner. <laughs> you know, that's exactly how the devil works. That's great a great reminder. Now, what about discouragement, Harold? When you feel like quitting, when you're so discouraged, when you are like in a, a battle of some sort, you think of Elijah, and Elijah is who you use as an example in your book, as fighting this great battle and then wanting to give up. How do you go to the Word of God and guide people on what to do when you're feeling discouraged? Well, first of all, when you become discouraged, one of the issues that you need to ask is, why am I discouraged? Is it because of what someone did? Is it that I wanted something to happen and it didn't happen? And subsequently, take your discouragement to the Lord. And then sometimes I say, hey, get out of the house. Get out in the sunshine. Take a walk through the woods. Do something where you focus on the beauty of nature and what God has done. But uh, there are times when I think everybody becomes discouraged. You hold on to what you know to be true, and you reject what you know is false. So when you face times of discouragement, realize Jesus will take you through that, and God may use this difficult time in your life to accomplish something very possible. And then... You go to the pages of the Word, what does it tell us? Well, many people can quote Romans 8, for we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. But many times, you can only see the hand of God in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look back over certain things that happened to me in life, and at first I thought, oh boy, this is not what I was praying about. But then I see how God used that to accomplish what only he could do, because I was no longer the magician who could do certain things or say things or make contact with some people who would help me through that. And that you knew that God was the one who was in control. Yes. And that is so meaningful, and it is so important. And then every morning, get in the Word as you start the day, so that you you fall back on the promises of God and when you pray, remind God of what he said and thank him for what he's going to do. And then someday we'll understand, but in the meanwhile, we walk by faith and we trust him for the strength that we need to get through the day and for him to be glorified in the process. Amen. That's excellent advice. I, I think that that is so true. And the further I go in my Christian walk, the more often I'm able to look back in retrospect and say, I know why you didn't answer that prayer, Lord, and thank you for not answering the prayer that I wanted and and overruling me and doing what would most glorify you and what was best for me in the process, because that's ultimately what every Christian wants anyway, and we learn that over time. Well, a wonderful book, When Your Heart Cries Out to God, Finding Comfort in Life's Trials by Dr. Harold Sala, who's been kind enough to join us today. Harold, it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, my privilege and pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. Well, it was great to have you here. God bless you. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Mefford today. We always appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you next time. God bless.